turn with me to the book of Philippians, and let's go to chapter 3. We want to pick up our study in verse 12 uh, through the conclusion up to verse 21. But this morning, if you'll notice in your bulletin, uh, the title of our teaching, I press toward the mark. Now, Paul comes to this conclusion. I want you to remind ourselves that Paul is in prison. He's in a Roman house arrest. He's there for a two-year span. There's a lot of thinking that's going through this man's heart. He wants to desperately minister to the churches, and he wants to come across with the things of God. And yet he comes to this place where there's a lot of time to uh, go over his own heart. And Paul possibly thinking that it's time. We know that he's going to be released. We know that there's a second uh, time that he's arrested. And then at that time in Rome, Nero has his head taken off. And so Paul is looking at, I press toward the mark. The key to our study in verse 14 is that word mark. I press toward the goal, some of your translations. But notice that he says, I press, I give all to get uh, to this mark, this goal, which is Christ Jesus. Now, here's the irony. If Jesus is not my goal, then eternal hell is a very possibility unless we turn and we repent of our sins. And it's our choice. We all have goals in life. And spiritual goals are part of our lives. Obviously, we have the goal of education, occupation. We have the goal of finances, our families. Some of us might even have political goals. And then we speak about these spiritual goals. Paul is speaking about pressing toward the mark, pressing towards this goal, which is Christ. Now, if you're not saved, you need to press towards that mark. To come to saving grace. And obviously, everything else is secondary. Now, God doesn't take away our education. He doesn't take away our occupation, our desire for another job, a better job. He doesn't take away our finances. But there has to be that blending together. There has to be that coming together. We're going to see a scripture this morning. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? We must come to the place of saving grace. I want you to turn with me uh, to the gospel of Luke chapter 9. Leave a marker there in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to get back to it. But there in Luke chapter 9, I want to begin in verse 23. And Jesus is going to be speaking. But before you go there, I want you to listen to this verse. Because it sets it up. In Matthew 6.33, one of these precious verses, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. As I said, he's not going to take away these things. We have things that we have goals for. There's nothing wrong with that. But seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and then notice he says, All these things will be added unto you. So many times we think, well, God's going to strip me away of everything. Not necessarily. Yes, he's going to strip away those things that do not edify, do not build up the body of Christ. Those things that are taking you down, those things that are tearing you down in the world, they need to be stripped away. 
But God, in his infinite mercy, uh, to me, our family uh, has just grown so much because of Christ. Your workplace, I hear some of your testimonies, is, is so good. In the workplace, you're able to share Christ with others. In school, now you know what you're going to school. You, you want to get this education, but you want to use it for the kingdom of God also. And so our goal, press towards that mark. Now look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus teaches here, take up the cross. Take up the cross. That's where it begins. He begins here in verse 23. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's an individual thing. It's a personal thing. It's your personal cross. You know, from time to time, you'll, see, you'll hear of somebody walking across the country, coast to coast. There was a guy named Arthur Blessed back in, in Southern California. And he used to carry this cross, a huge wooden cross. He had a little wheel at the bottom because it would be pretty crazy to, you know, to drag it through. But, I mean, that cross was heavy. And I remember him sharing one time in one of those uh, television programs. And he said, oftentimes guys come up to me, big guys. And they say, let me help you for the next mile. Well, he says about two blocks later, they're saying, hey, you want your cross back. <laughs> this guy literally had grown a callus on both shoulders. And he did that. He did it for a long time. But Jesus is saying here, you don't have to do that. I admire those guys that are able to make these wooden crosses and carry them. But Jesus says, pick up your cross daily. I've already gone to the cross for you. I've already died for you. But have you died to self? Have you died uh, to the world on a daily basis? Notice what he says in verse 24. For whosoever desires uh, to save his life is going to lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So many times we want to keep the things of the world. And that's what he's speaking about. You don't want to die to self. I, I need, you know, some of my toys. I, I need this. I need that. Whatever it might be. And be careful, church. If you keep your life, you're going to die, and it speaks of eternal hell unless you come to saving grace. It's a choice that we have. But sometimes we want to build that portfolio, and sometimes we want to build everything up here on this earth, and it's good. I mean, if God's given you the opportunity to buy, sell, and trade, then praise God, use it for his glory. There's some beautiful Christian men and women that are business people for the Lord. God uses that. But when we're just hoarding, I like that old adage, when you get to heaven, we're not going to see any U-Hauls. You can't take it with you. Notice now verse 25, and here's what we spoke of earlier. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? What advantage, that's the Greek translation, is there if you win the world? But you lose your own soul. Throughout the years, there's been a lot of millionaires, a lot of billionaires that have lost their life. Eventually, you're going to die. In Hebrews 9.27, it says that there is an appointed time for man to die and then the judgment. And so Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he or she gains the whole world? but loses their own soul. Look at verse 26, the conclusion now. 
For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his Father's name and of the holy angels. And so Paul is encouraging as Jesus is speaking here. We need to press towards that mark, which is Christ. That's eternal life. Our life here is temporal. We're here for a season. But to be with Christ. Now, a lot of people will look at this passage this morning. I press towards that mark. Well, that was Paul the Apostle. And that's for you, Pastor Bob. And that's for all the other church leaders. No, we're all called to press towards that mark, which is Christ. And again, he doesn't take everything away from us. But those things that don't edify will uh, eventually uh, succumb. Now let's go to Philippians. And he begins here in verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained this, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now to understand verse 12, look at verse 11 as we studied last week. Paul told the Philippians in verse 11 that I can experience the resurrection from the dead. Because Christ died, I'm going to rise again one day from the dead. If I'm born again of the Holy Spirit or the rapture of the church is going to take place. And so here, the rapture of the church or after his death, he will rise also to heaven. That's what Paul's saying. And then he goes right into verse 12. Don't think I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached completeness. I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. You see, church, the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. But we're not done yet. We're not complete yet. My completion will come when I enter the pearly gates. My completion will come is when Jesus takes me home. If it's through death, if it's through the rapture of the church, but when I go home to be with Christ, I am complete. And basically right now, I am changing. We've shared this many times. I hope you're not the same person you were last year as a born-again believer. Don't tell me you're still drinking the milk of the word that Peter speaks about, and I've been a Christian for 20 years. We have to grow in Christ. We have to develop in Christ. You go over here to the university, and you pick a subject, and you finally go through it. Let's say your major is history, and you want to become a history teacher. And you say, well, I got the degree now, and one of the schools has hired me. It's done. No. Uh, History teachers continually researching, continually growing, because our society is growing, and the knowledge is growing. So we want to know more. I've heard of professors that are into math. And I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, just uh, basically adding, subtracting, and multiplication, a little bit of decimal, but that's about it for me. (laughs) Oh, man, you got all these theories now, and this, and that, and, and everything, and they're constantly learning. You're ever learning. But Paul says here, what about our spiritual walk? Am I growing in Christ? I won't be complete. I will not be complete until I go home to be with the Lord. Now look at verse 13. He continues, brothers and sisters, or he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended yet. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. 
those things which are behind. Remember what we shared last week? Paul says, I count these all but refuge. They're lost to me. They're nothing to me. And Paul was a very learned man. Paul was a very ingenious man when it came to the spiritual things. He knew the law inside and out. He says, I count it all refuge. Remember the King James? I count it all dung. But to serve Christ now. And so here in verse 13, Paul, as he's speaking to the church at Philippi, but he's also speaking to us as the Holy Spirit ministers. He says, I have not yet apprehended. Listen to the word. In the Greek, I have not yet seized, I have not yet overtaken, I do not yet have possession. In other words, I'm still here. I'm not in heaven yet. I have not died and gone to be with the Lord, but I have forgotten, listen, those things of my past. My B.C. days, before Christ. But right now, notice what he says here. I'm reaching, I'm stretching out to the things ahead. Paul was on earth, but reaching toward heaven. And again, we're not neglecting the things that we have or the things that God gives. We're not to give everything away. They did that in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and it came to not a good conclusion. The early church combined everything. It was a communal type living. And they gave everything away. Very admirable. But that's not what God called us to do. And so you have people, even still today, listen, Jesus is coming. Let's get rid of everything. Let's get some white sheets on and let's go over here to A Mountain. Let's wait. Well, that's not what Jesus, or have you ever heard this one? I heard Christians actually say this. Because back in 1982, Jesus was supposed to come. Back in 1988, Jesus was supposed to come. They're always going to have date setters. And I remember Christians say, hey, listen, we need to get credit cards, man, and max them. Because Jesus is coming. Well, they're still paying those credit cards today. Come on, use your brain. So turn with me. Let's, let's develop this a little bit further. Because we're in this world, but we're not part of it. Go with me to the Gospel of John chapter 15. And let's pick it up in verse 18. Again, Paul is telling the church at Philippi, I press towards that mark, that goal, that mark which is Christ Jesus. Oh, I'm here on earth, but my mind is set with Christ. Oh, I'm here on this earth, but I am heavenly bound. I am not going to get so caught up into the things of the world. But listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 15, the gospel. Look at verse 18. Jesus is going to teach here on the hatred of the world towards the church. He begins in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is a true statement. Since the time of Christ, uh, 2,000 years later now, where we're at in the 21st century, the Christian church is hated. We're a hated group. Bottom line, they want you out. And bottom line, we want to leave. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Look at verse 19. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because, or yet because, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, church, we're in the world, but we're not part of it. I don't want to be so worldly-minded. I want to know the things of God. That doesn't mean we're so, you know, heavenly-minded. We're not caring at all. And so there's a stop sign. Well, forget it. I don't need it. 
No, it doesn't work that way because there's some, you know, red lights behind you that are going to say different. Notice verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so as we preach, there are going to be those uh, that will receive the word. As we minister, there's going to be those that receive uh, the word. But there's also going to be those that will persecute you. Now, first he said they hate you. Now they're going to persecute you. Persecution has been part of the church uh, since back in Acts chapter 2. Persecution uh, was so great in the first 300 years of the church. Persecution today is here. We might not feel it as hard when we speak about persecution. Oh, they might hate you, but basically nobody's persecuting us here in the United States of America. And yet I'm sure there's some. But when we speak of third world countries, we have brothers and sisters that are being persecuted right now. But notice as he says in verse 21, but all these things... They will do to you for my name's sake, because they said not to him who sent me. They do not know him. They do not know Christ. They do not know the Father that sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. They're going to hate you because they hated Jesus. Verse 22 says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. You're taking notes back in Romans chapter 1. It says man is without excuse. Man is without excuse. And always this analogy comes up. Well, what about that man that's out in the bush country, still living in a hut out there somewhere? And they don't have the gospel. They don't have, you know, translation. They don't know about God. Well, in Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So they will know the spirit of the Lord will speak to them. Notice verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. He's speaking directly to the Jews there. They wanted nothing to do with him. And if they hated the father, they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you, the church, the body of Christ. Verse 24 goes on. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. It's interesting that miracle signs and wonders will not save us. And I want you to think of some of the miracles you might know or remember uh, back in the New Testament. We got people that were blind, were being healed. We got a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. They had seven demons they were cast out. We have seven or ten lepers, excuse me, ten lepers that were healed. And, and so we hear, uh, what, what about uh, somebody rising from the dead? And so Lazarus rose from the dead. But how many came to saving grace? And here's the Jews, the religious leaders at the time. They knew the miracle signs and wonders that Jesus had done for three and a half years, just three and a half year span. Did they come to saving grace? So it's not always the miracle signs and wonders. It's the Holy Spirit that pricks the heart of man. He concludes this portion. Look at verse 25. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And yet all the prophecies 
pointed to Jesus. All the prophecies that spoke of that he would suffer greatly. I don't know how a Jewish religious leader could read Psalm 22 and not come to the conclusion that they're speaking of the Savior. It speaks it clearly. But see, when our eyes are blinded and when our ears are, are stopped, the Holy Spirit cannot penetrate. And so when we pray, church, listen, when you pray for your spouse or your children, or maybe it's mom, maybe it's dad, maybe it's a relative, uh, whoever you might be praying for, and sometimes nothing seems to happen, pray specifically, Lord, remove the blinders. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, that is. Lord, remove, you know, what's stopping in their ears. And Lord, remove the callous in their heart. Give them a, a yearning and a desire for God. And God does speak to the hearts of men. And so Paul is clarifying this. Now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 14. And this is where we draw a press toward the mark this morning. And some of your other translation, and here's my new King James, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul comes to this conclusion. Now that I realize the world has nothing for me, as we spoke of the words of Christ, I must press. Listen to the word. I must push ahead. I must persevere towards the goal, towards this mark, which is Christ. But then listen to what Paul uses, the word prize. He says the prize of the upward call. The prize, that he, the word prize is an athletic term. A term they would use for the Olympic Games. A term that was used for the Greek Games. And so Paul would insert this, they would understand. In the Greek, he says, for the prize of the upward call, or the win, that I would receive now this crown, this award, because I won the race, I, I, I won the wrestling match, whatever it might have been. The winner in the Greek games, uh, the Olympic games, they would receive a, a laurel wreath which eventually uh, would succumb. I mean, it wouldn't last very long. It would soon fade away. They also received perks if you won uh, the Olympic Games or the Greek Games. But these two would eventually fade away. The perks would be for you know, financial gain. The perks would be for uh, living conditions. The perks would be for also for your family. But eventually, it would fade away. And we look at our Olympic Games. They're so popular. And the whole key is, got to get the gold. And yet even that fades away. We have a young girl just recently. It's all been all over the news. And she won so many medals. And here we are uh, several years later. They've taken them all away or they're going to take them all away. And she has nothing. And bottom line today, it's just like the laurel wreath. You want the gold. You don't want the silver. You don't want the bronze. You want the gold because you're going to get a Wheaties box top now. Your face will be on. And then you're going to get perks. Talk about perks today. I mean, basically, you're a millionaire if you're an Olympian. That's just the way it's set up. But Paul is saying these things also will fade away. You see, but the church receives an upward call of God. 
in Christ Jesus. One day the church, we will all be glory bound, and we need to say praise God to that. Again, the world has nothing. Remember the words of Jesus. We already uh, shared them this morning. You're in the world, and the world hates you. And we're part of this world, but it's temporal. Turn with me. I want you to see this. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. It's a concept we have to learn, church, because, you know, we want all the gusto of the world. We want all of the glory of the world. And, I mean, who doesn't want to be on Forbes' list of, of the most rich in the world? And then you get there, then you got to worry about staying there. Oh, poor Oprah, she dropped down two notches. And, you know, poor other guy, he moved up a couple of notches. And I wonder if Bill Gates even cares where he's at. I mean, you can have so much money. <laughs> I was reading about Ted Turner, and uh, everybody's concerned now because he keeps buying land, buying land, and more bison to put on the land. He owns land everywhere. Uh, everybody's worried because he owns practically everything north of us in New Mexico. And I said, well, great. Does he know Jesus? But I have 10,000 bison. Uh, but do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? That's the key, church. You see, we're going for a whole different crown. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In 2 Timothy, Paul was in his second imprisonment. And he's getting ready to die. And we know in the second imprisonment, he does die. He is beheaded. And so he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now, I want you to remember this. In Christianity, it's not who wins the race, but who finishes the race, who finishes the course. Oh, praise the Lord, I beat Pastor Jeff, you know. No, that's not the issue. Did I finish the race? Then I finished the race. You know the tortoise and the hare, the old story? Did you finish the race? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8, finally, the, uh, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. One day... God is going to give us a crown of righteousness for coming to saving grace. And you know what, church? We're not going to stand there in heaven and say, hey, that's not fair. Their crown looks a little bigger than my crown. Man, be glad you're there. Listen to this verse now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. Peter says we're going to receive a, a crown of glory, a crown of glory. But listen, we have to finish the race. We have to finish the race. Every year when I go back for conference, pastor's conference, it, it takes place in June. It never fails. There's always a pastor that's defaulted. There's always a, a church that lost their pastor to sin. What does that do to the wife? What does that do to the children? What does that do to some of the uh, body of Christ there at that particular church? See, that's what church is all about. I don't want nothing to do with it. Man, you better have your eyes on Jesus. Because man will always fail you. Man will always fail you. 
And so we are pressing towards that mark for a crown of righteousness, for a crown of glory. Man, I want the Lord to open that door and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the glory of God. Now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul's speaking about maturity in Christ. Paul's speaking about the believer uh, that is a Christian that has been rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Have this mind, this mind of Christ. You see, there's a danger of being a Christian for 20 years and still in the milk of the Word. Have we grown for Christ? Have we matured for Christ? Or as Paul, as Peter writes, are we still dabbling in the milk of the word? Man, we need to come in and partake of the steak. And so, do we have this mind, this mind of Christ? And so Paul says to this, some of you are going to agree on what I'm teaching, and some of you are going to disagree on some of the points. But I believe that God will make it all clear to you. He's telling the church at Philippi. Now, Paul obviously received some messages I'm believing Epaphroditus when he came and he came to Paul and he brought that financial gift, but he also brought news. And so what were they saying? You see, church, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to the hearts of man. Maybe some of the Christians there at Philippi were not pressing towards the mark, uh, which is Christ, and maybe some were still indulging in their past flesh, as we've been mentioning. Well, I'm a Christian, but I still want some of those things of the flesh. You see, the flesh is still good. I'm a fleshly man. You're a fleshly man. You're a fleshly woman. And if we didn't desire sin, sin is good. I mean, we like sin or else we wouldn't do it. And it's there. It's always enticing us, always trying to draw us back. And, and it was hard. It wasn't easy for Paul. You think he was, you know, constantly the saint of God? No. We are all tempted and we all must make that choice. And so, notice now, verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that uh, we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Again, that mind of Christ. As I was looking at some of my commentaries, Wycliffe, in his commentary, said this, and I really enjoyed it. He says of verse 16, he translates it, Let us not deviate uh, from those principles that have brought us safely to our present stage. He says of Christian maturity, the condition for future enlightenment is to walk according to the present light. So what is Wycliffe saying? What Paul is saying, let go of our past. And let's keep pressing to the mark which is Christ. And let us think, glory-bound. Again, we can start to hoard things. Now, please don't misunderstand. I mean, if God's given you the ability and the finances, and you can own a boat, then buy one. But when it takes over your life, when it takes over your Sundays to come to church, you see, it starts to become an idol in my life and in your life. We have to be very careful. There are checks and balances. You see, we have to remind ourselves what we shared last week. 
We're saved by grace through faith. Let me read that text to you just to bring it back to remembrance. You can write it down. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, uh, Paul so beautifully shares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Goes into verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is this gift of God. Verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. It would be so easy to boast what I did, which you did for salvation. All I did is I came to Christ by faith. He did the rest of the work. And verse 10 is that verse that I love. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We come to saving grace. I've heard the gospel message. The Holy Spirit has pricked my heart. I come to salvation. I know it's not of works. And then God bestows upon me, and he says, we are his workmanship. Remember that Greek word? The word, the word workmanship is poema. We are God's poem. We are God's handiwork. Something that God has done. He created you. He created me. Moms, dads, remember when your little kid came home the first, second grade, something like that, and they brought you a picture. Mom, Dad, look at it. I, I drew you, and I drew Dad, and I drew, I drew the house. And it, it's all stick people, right? And then I was like, oh, man, how come the head's so big for me? But your kid drew that. It was personal. It was his poema for you. It, it was his uh, artwork. It was his handiwork. You go to my mom's house today. She has a circular plaque and uh, plaster of Paris. Remember that? And it has my handprint. It's still there. I go, Mom, get rid of that thing. Don't you touch that. You leave that alone. I'm embarrassed of it. And I told you that. My mom made my first shoes bronze shoes. I go, Mom, get those things out of there. Now she gives them to my wife. My wife puts them up in, at our house. Pastor Bob, whose shoes are those? Oh, they belong to my, my grandson. <laughs> but this was a handiwork. This was something personal. And so Jesus says, we are his workmanship. And I'll tell you what. He's created us. He's made us. He's bringing us along. I'm pressing towards that mark, which is Christ. The world hates me. The world hates you. But we're going glory bound one day. Now he comes to the conclusion of the chapter, verses 17 through 21. And here he speaks about the true believer, the true follower in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have some pastor friends, missionary friends. And a lot of times they have dual citizenship. And so they can go into Mexico and they can come back and they keep their citizenship in the United States and they also have a citizenship uh, there in Mexico. And Paul boasted of his citizenship. He, he, you know, he was a Roman and he was also a Hebrew. And so he had the two citizenships. But watch what Paul says here now. Verse 17, brethren, he says, join in following my example and note those things or those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, I struggle with verses like this because listen to what Paul is saying to the church. Pattern your lives after me and learn from those who follow our examples. 
You know, I don't want people to follow me. I want people to follow Jesus. But you see, some people need an example. Some people need a hero. And I'm not talking about the baseball heroes, the, the football heroes, and the basketball heroes. Because they're only temporal. And then we hear, you know, years later, they're taking away their medals and such. Poor Barry Bonds, he's got the world record, right? Home runs, and they're putting an asterisk there. Why? Because they're suspecting that he cheated. And so we make heroes. And what about Christ? Some of you don't remember, but in our time, Superman was a hero. Everybody, every kid wanted to be Superman. In fact, some kids were tying towels around their neck and jumping off the roofs of the houses, <laughs> thinking they could fly. I wasn't one of them. And then when I got old enough, listen to this. I found out that Superman committed suicide. You know what that does to you? Because I didn't look at him as his natural name, Steve Rees, I think his name was. I saw, I saw Superman. No, he can't. He's able to lead, you know. I, I forgot the song already. But notice what he says here. Imitate my example in Christ Jesus. Why would Paul say that? Let me give you a quick scenario. You see, Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loved the Word of God. Paul loved prayer. Paul loved to spend time in worship and praise. Paul loved the ministry that God called him to. Paul loved to witness about Christ's love. Paul loved to plant churches ordained pastors, elders, deacons. That's what Paul was about. Not only Paul's example, but remember young Timothy? My son in the spirit. Remember Epaphroditus? Another son in the spirit. Paul recommended these guys. And in fact, he sent Epaphroditus back, and then he sent Timothy uh, to Philippi. Here's a verse that Again, one of those verses that frustrate for a leader. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says the word, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. The word is to mimic in the Greek. The word is to copy, to mimic. Copy me because I copy Jesus. Follow me because I follow Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior of the world. Dads, let me challenge you this morning. Are you such an example to your son, to your daughters, that they want to do what dad does? Man, I see my dad praying. And I, I see my dad bringing us to church. Man, I see my dad reading the scriptures. Man, I see my dad sharing Christ with the neighbor. I want to be like my dad. Because we do. We just do. Some of you know Gail Irwin, a great man of God. He, part of Calvary Chapel. Gail's up in his 70s now. And he tells a story of his kids copied him. And he used to have this habit, his two thumbs, he would put them in the eyelets of the belt because he always wore suspenders. And so he used to put them in there. And he says, it was a worthless thing. I just did it. And one day my wife goes, hey, look. And there's a seven-year-old. He's looking at his thumb and he's looking at the eyelet, and he gets the other thumb, and looks in there, and then he starts rocking like his dad. I taught my son a worthless thing, he said. <laughs> Imitate me, Paul says. 
because I imitate Christ, the example. And then he goes on into verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often. He's speaking about the false teachers, those Judaizers. And now I tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross. Paul never held back in all of his epistles. He would always warn of the false teachers, the false prophets, the false evangelists. And here, as we shared last week, in the church at Philippi came these Judaizers. They began back in Acts chapter 14, undermining the teachings of Paul. Listen, Jesus is fine, salvation to Christ, but don't forget your Jewish roots. You have to go back and be circumcised. They were very adamant in that area. And so Paul came against it. And so he's speaking about the Judaizers, the teachers. They continue to preach who wish to incorporate circumcision and other ordinances of the law with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've shared this before, church. Be careful when we add uh, to the word of God. Well, listen, Jesus is fine, but you need this. Listen, salvation is fine, but you need this. And there's always an, you know, an additive. All we need is Christ in all reality. All we need is Christ. Then he goes on here in verse 18. They are the enemies. Speaking of these Judaizers, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They rather attribute justification to the Levitical sacrifices than to the sacrificial death of Christ. And thus they are enemies to the cross. And will know, they were, he says, and will not suffer persecution for its sake. They please the world and are no in danger of reproach. You see, the false prophets, the false teachers were always in it for personal gain. It was not about Christ. It was not about suffering. It was not about persecution. It was not about martyrdom for them. If you study the life of Paul, the apostle, the man suffered greatly for Christ. He counted it all joy. He said to uh, Silas, these are but light afflictions. But these false teachers, they didn't care about you. They didn't care about God. They cared about themselves. And then notice, he's going to describe it further. Verse 19, speaking of the Judaizers, he says, Whose in is, is destruction, whose God, small g, is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. That's why he was speaking earlier. And we shared about Christ saying, you're in the world, but you're not part of it. Paul is saying here about these false teachers. Their future is eternal destruction, eternal hell, if there's no repentance. Their God, small g, is their appetite. They just want to fill their own bellies. The whole purpose of their ministry is how much can we get? We see that today, sad. They brag about shameful things, Paul says. And all they think about is the life here on this earth. These false teachers cared about self. They only wanted to fill their own appetites, their personal gain. They cared not for your souls. 
They brag about their shameful ways. Jesus brought that forth concerning the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. But Paul says here in verse 19, they bragged about their shameful ways. The Greek says they bragged about their disgraceful and dishonest ways. Nothing spiritual, totally flesh, totally world, disregard of the spiritual things. Sad today, but there are people that go to seminary. There are people that go to Bible college. There are people that will open up a ministry, start a ministry. You have the charisma. You have that look. You have that speech. Man, they put you on TV. You're taking off. You're taking off. Because people have a tendency to look at the outward instead of the inward. And you better check and see if the word of God is being preached. Look at verse 20 now. And Paul comes to this place now of citizenship. He says, our citizenship is in heaven uh, from which we also eagerly wait uh, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a King James, they use the word conversation. But if you click on to the word conversation, it'll bring up the word uh, citizenship in the Greek, but it also speaks of our manner of life, our way of life. But we are citizens. Our way of life is to go heavenly bound where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly, Paul says, waiting for him to return as our Savior, our personal citizenship in heaven. I'm awaiting the rapture of the church. And if the rapture of the church does not come in my time, in your time, when I die, I want to go home to be with the Lord. Paul said to the church at Corinth, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. It's very painful to see a, a beautiful Christian loved one, a brother, a sister in Christ, dying of cancer, grasping that last breath. And then they succumb. And it hurts to see the pain. But to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Oh, imagine that. You went through, I've seen, I've seen what cancer does. You take a 250-pound man and he's down to 80 pounds, skin and bones, and it hurts to see that. And you saw him before. When my grandpa died, he was skin and bones. And it's sad. And then to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Where is my citizenship? Where is your citizenship? Listen to this. We are strangers here on this earth. Peter said we're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're strangers here on this earth, but citizens in heaven. Our walks, listen, are here on this earth, but our hearts are in heaven. Keep that in mind. The conclusion, verse 21 when that time comes that he takes us home, Paul says, who will transform our lowly bodies. He says that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Who will transform our lowly bodies. God is going to transform us. Now, we've already shared that. We are being transformed now. 
Oh, I'm changing here on this earth. So are you. I'm becoming a better Christian, a stronger Christian. Oh, I still have the flesh nature. I still have the sin nature. But the time is going to come that he's saying here. Listen to the translation. He will take these weak mortal bodies of ours and change them into the glorious bodies like his own. Speaking of, uh, we're going to be like Christ, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything everywhere. Our change is coming. A complete change. A complete metamorphosis. Oh, I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. God's changed us. But I'm not complete yet. The day's coming that he's going to complete me. The day's coming he's going to complete you. And yet we try to hang on to everything. We try to keep everything. How many of you know who Jack LaLanne is? I mean, it goes way back. You're telling us your age, you know. <laughs> but I, I grew up and I saw Jack LaLanne. He's still the same. He's old as the hills, right? <laughs> oh, man, that guy exercises constantly. Now he's selling that juice machine. He's got to be in his 90s. But I remember feats that that man used to do. He used to pull boats with, uh, uh, you know, a rope in his mouth. He used to pull, uh, you know, Trains and, I mean, just different things. The man was just great. And he's, now he's pushing the juice. Hey, I'm going to live forever. No, you're not. <laughs> Your time is coming. I hope and I pray that Jack LaLanne is a Christian. Jack LaLanne is a Christian. And then one day, I'm watching one of his uh, commercials, and he says, I also have a glass of wine every morning or every day. Man, all the alcoholics, all right. Let's <laughs> Let's get the juice machine. <laughs> but the time is coming that he's going to transform these bodies. Now, last passage of Scripture. Turn with me uh, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, uh, towards the end of the book, verses 1, 2, and 3. Here Jesus, or John, is writing about the command to love. The command to love. Now, if you're taking notes, back in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus gives us the great commandment. It's not that he wiped away the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20, but in Matthew 22, verse 37, 34, love God with everything you have, then love your neighbor as yourself. Because the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees had just asked them, what is the greatest commandment? And he told them. So now listen to what John writes. John the Beloved, he begins in 1 John 3, look at verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Church, we are different. The Bible calls us peculiar people. We are strangers, sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. We're different. We're different. And that's why the world hates you. You see, you can talk about God because God incorporates a lot. But talk about Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth, is my Savior. Ooh, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words even in the United States. I mean, they're trying, trying to take in God we trust out of everything. They're trying to take our little three crosses here in our community. 
It's not over yet, church. Look at verse 2. Now, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. I like that. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to be like Jesus. He's going to transform these bodies. Now, to get the best picture, because I'm born again of the Holy Spirit, I'm changing now, but I'm not complete yet. To get the picture of what Jesus uh, or John is speaking of, back in Matthew chapter 17, it's called the, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there Jesus takes Peter, James, and John uh, to this area called Mount Hermon. And he shows them a picture of eternity. And there Jesus appears in his glorified body, Moses in his glorified body, and Elijah in his glorified body. Jesus represents the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Covenant. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. It's all come together now. Peter didn't really understand it. He said, let us make booths for them. But Jesus was showing them. But we know, look at verse 2 again, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. While we are here on this earth, church, we must live a pure life, a life without sin. God has sanctified us, set us apart. Now, obviously... I fail daily. Obviously, you fail daily. Obviously, we're still sinners. But we've come to saving grace. And he's completing us. And as I study his word, his word tells me exactly what to do. He's changing us. He's transforming us. He's making us a, a new man. He's making you a new woman. He's making you a new young person in Christ. He's making you a new, a new elderly person in Christ if we know Jesus.